Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. I'm going, as I mentioned, to uh, uh, share some more today along the lines of the last couple Sundays, which I started, started with a short message before the day we did Brenda's, well, on the day, but before, the, we, before Brenda's memorial service. And the theme is that every Christian is a minister of the gospel. And we've, uh, we think incorrectly if we think that the difference is uh, full-time versus part-time or full-time ministry, or not in ministry. It's not that at all. It's occupational ministry, um, or um, clergy, perhaps. Uh, uh, verse, not verses, but... Uh, and then on one hand, you know, I'm clergy. I'm an occupational ministry. You may not be an occupational ministry, but you are a full-time minister nonetheless, even if you are a lay person. The laity is just as important in terms of accomplishing ministry as the clergy, what is the role of the the person who is um, walking in a minister a ministry gift? You know, the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher. These are for what the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, equipping you for the work of ministry. I don't like to think of clergy as a rank. Uh, there might be a rough analogy there to the military, where you have officers. And you have uh, enlisted men, but everybody is a full-time member of the service. And there are different roles, but you don't receive rewards, you don't receive medals based at all on your rank. You walk through any training base in the United States and you'll see different ranges. Here's the firing range, here's the land navigation range, whatever. And they're all named after somebody, uh, in many cases, a Medal of Honor winner. And in most cases, these Medal of Honor winners, the highest um, honor you can receive, military honor, uh, these are privates, specialists, corporals, uh, who did something heroic to save the lives of their unit. They are receiving this honor because of what they accomplished in their role, not because of any rank they achieved. And so when we think about our rewards and um, recognition, uh, what we need to do is, is keep in mind that we are going to be rewarded based on what Christ has demanded or commanded of us. And last week, that's really what we focused on. We looked at the parable of the talents and uh, three stewards who were meant to manage their master's assets in his absence. And uh, we looked very closely at the last one, the wicked and lazy servant who took the one talent he had and buried it. He hid it, buried it in the ground, and returned it to his master, and, and his, uh, his master called him wicked and lazy. Well, we know he was lazy because he didn't work with the talent and turn it into more talents like the other two did. What did the master say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. I'll, uh, I'm going to make you faithful. I'm going to make you responsible for much. And to this other guy, he said, you are wicked and lazy. Well, we know he's lazy. Why was he wicked? not just his laziness, it was because he mischaracterized his master. He said, I know that you're a harsh man, you're a hard man, you're an unjust man, you like to reap where you don't sow. And none of that was true about him, was it? Because where did the talent come from? It came from the master. He sowed into this servant's life, 
and he decided to do nothing with it. And we looked at how the world, and unfortunately even some believers, view God as harsh and even unjust. But our conclusion is that there is no better boss, there is no better master than Jehovah, our God, right? And to wrap up the review, the three points of practical application I closed with last week, and again, you need to go back and listen to it rather than just hear these three things. You know, there's an explanation for each one of these. But these are the three things we should do, and one of them is to give, one of them is to serve somewhere in the church, and the third one is to remember that outside the church, you are a minister. Okay? And this is what I want to look at uh, in a little more detail today, that last one. And I think because, especially in churches like ours, where we do and have historically made a point of honoring men and women in occupational ministry, whether it's missionaries, uh, evangelists, itinerant teachers, certainly pastors, there's a tendency to desire a post like that. And on one hand, that's a good thing. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says this. This is Paul writing to Timothy, a young man in ministry, saying, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, for the purposes of here this morning, we'll just remember that when we read the word bishop, it's really worth looking at other translations, and it's, it's best just to read that as a leader in the church. Uh, bishop, pastor, elder, a lot of these trans translated words are used interchangeably, but he's talking about somebody who's walking in a position that involves a degree of oversight and authority in the church. He says it's a good work. Somebody wants to do that, that's a good thing that they want. But, on the other hand, you've got James chapter 3, verse 1, that says this, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And again, we can safely expand that idea to include anyone with spiritual oversight. And remember that this stricter judgment is not just a matter, you know, Jesus did warn, you know, hey, if you're, if you're leading somebody and you lead them astray, especially one of these little ones, it'd be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were dropped into the water. But it's also that we who are in the position of teaching and leading others, uh, that stricter judgment also comes in the form of scrutiny from the people you're teaching and from people even who are outside the church. So it's not always something that you desire just because it's an attractive posting, okay? Let's go back and look at what we all should desire, and I would uh, direct you to Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he, this is Jesus, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is still where they are, even after the resurrection. And he said to them, and it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is what every 
minister needs to take to heart. He's, this is right before he ascends, and he says, stay here, wait for the promise of the Father, the one you heard from me, the one I was telling you about. When he comes, when the Comforter comes, you will receive power to be my witnesses. Starting here, ending up everywhere. Now, I want you to know that I am so thankful for the legacies of people like Billy Graham, Moody, Finney, Wesley, oh, the list goes on and on, Whitfield, Spurgeon, so many of these evangelists who brought thousands, even millions to the Lord with their ministry. But I am absolutely convinced that the vast majority of salvations happen because of the personal witness of individual believers. Even the ones who did get saved as part of maybe a thousand people answering an altar call, most of those people were invited to that meeting by an individual believer. I think of the woman at the well who encountered Jesus and went back and said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. We are going next week to look at a layperson who often gets overlooked, who had a tremendous evangelistic ministry in the New Testament. Not even going to tell you who he is or what his name is today. You can guess. I don't know how many of you are familiar with a guy named James Tour, Dr. James Tour. He is a professor. He's actually, right now, he's a professor of computer science at Rice University. Uh, but he got his degree, his uh, Ph.D. in organic chemistry, and he's an expert, a world-renowned expert on nanotechnology. We're talking about, this is a guy who builds molecules for a living. He was, uh, and, and this is where I'm way out of my depth here, okay? This is not my area of expertise. Uh, but this guy has fascinated me for years, and I've looked up some of the stuff he's done and built. He has hundreds of patents and hundreds of papers that are published in scientific journals, and he is referred to and quoted often. He is an absolute top-tier scientist. Uh, and he's a believer, of course. You, you probably see where, where I'm going with that. But I just want you to understand, he's not just a guy, scientist who happens to believe in God. He is a, an ex expert, top in his field. He was, for example, challenged to build something Pastor Mike, you and I were talking about this the other day, and I think I told you he built a car out of molecules. He didn't. He built a molecule that was a car. He arranged the atoms to form a particular type of molecule that resembled a car. And it was kind of done as a challenge, and the, and the, the people in his department said, okay, you built what? Look, you basically built a model of a car, but it doesn't move. So he built one that did and it, it, this was, and it actually has applications. They are now learning to deliver things at the nano level uh, like medicines because they train this car, which they energize with light or just an interaction between it and another molecule to send it along a certain path and deliver it to certain parts of the body. The applications are tremendous. But we're talking about something so small that the width of a human hair is 50,000 times wider. 
You can't even see this with a microscope. You've got to have an electron microscope to image it. But this is what this guy does. And, and this is the part where I'm, where I'm out. That stuff's, I just expressed it in layman's terms because that's all I can do. But here's where I'm really out of my depth. What makes, what makes his work go is he studies what makes one atom connect or bond with another. And this is his area of expertise. How can we manipulate, manipulate these things to come together in such a fashion that they perform a certain task? And because that's his area of expertise, he speaks very strongly against even the slightest possibility of enough of the right kinds of atoms coming together to form even a simple protein, let alone a cell wall or any of the mechanisms of a cell, and he says, we cannot begin with science to tackle the origin of life. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating subject, and he loves to talk about it. But, and, and I could share a little bit more with you about that because it's so, so interesting. But I'll tell you this, because uh, I don't think what I have is going to take super long today anyway. When he talks about this stuff, he says they, there are, you know, they thought they, there, there was a thing clear back in the 60s. I remember reading about this in the 70s how they had created life in the lab. Anybody remember this? They, 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 they created, they put a bunch of chemicals uh, in, a, in a test tube or something that they said, this more or less resembles the quote-unquote primordial soup that was on the earth billions of years ago. And they send a jolt of electricity through it, and poof, they get an amino acid. Number one, it didn't really happen that way. And number two, the chain of events from that to even a simple protein, and then from that to even the simplest cell life. But it got everybody excited because it's like, ah, we've got the first step down. And he and others have said, in the years since then, as they followed this, and they're like, we're going to get closer and closer to the origin of life, they've made some advances, but the more they know, the farther the target gets away. As their ability to see things smaller and smaller and understand more and more just how complicated this is, after nearly 50 years of studying this, they are farther away than ever from, fig- from uh, even starting to figure out how life forms. It's fascinating. He says, and any of them will tell you that in private. He says, I have conversations with these guys all the time, and they'll tell me things in private that they won't say in public because it'll affect their funding. Because once you say science can't explain this, and all of a sudden, ooh, then it must be religion. And they're trying to keep religion out of the, out of the uh, conversation. Anyway, getting way off track. This guy is so impressive, and uh, many times you'll hear a scientist who is a believer, or at least a theist, say, I have done the science, and I've looked at these things, and because I understand this so well, the first thing I need to tell you is, I think all of the scientific evidence points to the strong possibility of a creator, an intelligent creator. This guy was being interviewed by Eric Metaxas, and he, Eric Metaxas shares some of this guy's credentials and his work, and then starts, starts off with the question, do you believe it's possible uh, for life to be formed uh, you know, out, of, out of non-life, abiogenesis? And the first thing out of his mouth, uh, out of Jim Tour's mouth is, first of all, I just want to tell you, I love Jesus. I love, love, love Jesus. I love him so much. And I'm laughing listening to this because it reminded me, do you remember me sharing that story about uh, uh, when Bonhoeffer was invited over here to one of the seminaries? 
And they're all looking forward to hearing this deep theology from this, from this bright young pastor and student. And the first thing out of his mouth as he walks into the classroom is, don't you love Jesus? And they're all like, huh? That's not a scholarly thing to say. But this is where a tour is. His, his, I, I'm going to look into maybe having this guy in here someday. I don't know what, what it would take to get him here. But his testimony is really worth listening to. And you can find different versions of it on YouTube. I'll try to find the, uh, the best version of it and send you a link this week. But he, he talks about, he was, an, he was an atheistic Jew when he went to uh, Syracuse, I think, and was converted through the process of converse, conversation with a saved roommate or classmate, at least. This guy just introduced him to Christ, and he had a powerful conversion experience where he says, I literally knew Jesus was in the room with me. And since that day, I'm jumping ahead here, but I'll come back and and reiterate this point. He began reading his Bible, and every, what he has done for the, I don't know, 40 years he's been a believer, I don't know, I'm not even sure how old this guy is, but for all the years he's been a believer, he opens his Bible at Genesis 1-1 and reads it straight through. He has never stopped doing that. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this once a year, I'm going to do it every six months. He just reads it, however long it takes. He says, sometimes it takes me five years to get through the Bible because he studies, studies, studies it, reads it. He loves it so much. And then as soon as he gets to the end, flips it back to the beginning and reads it again. Spends, I think he said, last time I I heard him talk about this, I think he gets up no later than four o'clock in the morning so that he can spend a minimum of two hours reading the Bible in the morning. Now, this is a guy, this is a very busy guy with a lot of work to do. And it's interesting, too, is he loves his work. And when he reads the Bible, he prays, God, show me something in here that's going to improve my work, make me a better scientist. He says, and he always does. He gets all of his credit uh, that, that he's gotten, and it's just mounds of accolades, and he gives all the glory to Jesus Christ for speaking to him through his word. I want to preach a whole sermon about Jim Tour, but this is what really grabbed me. He said that he talks about it at every opportunity. Remember, this is a guy who's not in occupational ministry, but he converses every day with other scientists, whether they're fellow professors or graduate students or undergraduate students who are part of his team. Every time he gets an opportunity, he shares his faith in Christ. And because of this relationship, many of them, like I said, will confess to him that they have doubts about the science uh, and, and, the, and the, they have doubts about how science conflicts with what they call religion. Here's the thing that, that really hit me, though. He says, at least one person every week comes to belief because of these conversations. Do you know how stunning that is? This is a guy, a professional scientist, who is leading 52 people or more a year to faith in Christ through conversation. How many people did you lead to Christ this year? Or last year? How many people have I? I haven't led 52 people to Christ in any given year that I can think of, personally. And this guy is not a professional minister. Now, think about the people he's talking to. These are what you and I would consider hard targets. Right? 
because they've been steeped in the scientific tradition that is stacked, and I'll share with you sometime proof of how it's stacked against Christianity and theism in general. But because of his credentials, he gets an open door where you and I would have it slammed in our faces. You agree with that? I mean, I do. He, uh, he, he, they can't tell him, oh, you're an idiot, because he's a better scientist than anybody else in the room. They have to listen to him. And he can just be honest. We wouldn't get a hearing. Proverbs 18.6 says this, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. How many of you have heard that verse before? Now, I've got to be honest. This verse is tricky. It's a double-edged sword because if you read it in context, honestly, uh, it's a, what it is, it's a strong warning against perverting justice with bribery. Meaning, if I've got a court appointment, if I've got an argument, a legal case with my neighbor, I'll bring a gift to the judge so that I get an opportunity to see him in private and make my case not before a jury and not before anybody else, but to sort of get a chance to win him over. There's this, uh, it's, a, it's another proverb that shows up, you know, uh, every man is right, every man seems right until you hear the other side. And so it's like the, if, if I can get somehow influence the judge, well, how am I, I'm not just going to knock on his door, I'm going to bring a gift. And so there's this bribery aspect. Uh, but you expand that just a little bit and you can see how when the Bible tells us about Solomon's reign and these leaders from other surrounding nations would come, they want to see his accomplishments because they've heard how beautiful Jerusalem is, especially the, the courtyard and the temple and the palace, and they want to see it and they want to hear Solomon's wisdom. So they show up, but they always show up with what? Gifts. Gifts. And so it buys you an audience with the people you want to see. But I believe that this is one of those verses that God has allowed to sort of bubble up into people's consciousness because there is, even though this might not be the primary meaning of the verse in context, I believe it still proclaims a truth, which is that your gift will make room for you. On the job, on the team, and in ministry. In other words, I just mentioned the team. I was never uh, a great athlete, but if somebody really wanted to be on the football team, uh, do you get a position uh, starting on the football team by begging the coach, please, 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 please let me play, please let me play? No, who gets to play? The people who show they have the ability to play. This kid has talent. This kid has a gift. This kid has athletic ability. He's going to play. Your gift will make room for you in ministry. Your God-given abilities will emerge as you submit to discipleship, commit yourself to spiritual growth, and your place in the body of Christ will become apparent. Maybe it is in occupational ministry, but that should never be our goal. Our goal is to be effective ministers, effective witnesses to Jesus Christ, whatever our job is. So James Tours' intellectual gifts put him in a position to reach people that you and I probably cannot. And I don't want to discount the fact that there are people who are gifted as evangelists. Uh, I, I've known some personally. You, you take a, a Billy Graham, there's an obvious one. There was a guy 
uh, first name was Tom, who came and spoke to our, our Rhema class, and he was one of these guys. I've heard of them many, many times. You put him in a room with 100 people, and if there's one unsaved person in that room, that's who he will gravitate to without knowing anybody in the room. And he probably will not leave that room without that guy being saved. Um, maybe you might remember Eastman Curtis, who took over Fire by Night when Blaine Bartell retired. Same way. Uh, just, this guy would, could get anybody saved. It was just the easiest thing in the world for him to do. Uh, Brother Mac, uh, the guy I worked for, Mac Gober, was, he just had a way of breaking people down. I've told you the story where we were having, to, I won't go into the details now, because uh, they're kind of uncomfortable, but we had a, a kid, one of the students up in our office who had a particular issue, and Brother Mac ca uh, called down and said, hey, we've got we've, this kid, he's got to get out of there, right, because he's, he's doing this, right? Well, we, we think so too, but we can't prove it, and he swears it's not. Well, I'll come down and talk to him. And in five minutes, this kid is literally on his knees crying, repenting before Brother Mac. He could just bring people. It was just the Spirit of God working through him. But... Here's the thing I really want you to see. Some people are called to do that. I'm convinced that I'm called to be a pastor. And I'm in occupational ministry. I have a reasonable grasp of the scriptures. I can lay out God's plan of salvation accurately. But I, as a professional, am going to be nowhere near as effective in reaching the science professors or even the science students at Rice University or any other university as a gym tour. But it's not just the intellectuals that we're talking about or any sort of specialization. Do you know, for instance, who is probably, almost certainly, going to be the best witness for Christ to a cop? Another cop. Do you know who has the best chance of reaching somebody for Christ who is a soldier? Another soldier. Another doctor, another dock worker, another banker. This is all done in relationships. You see, the world expects people in my position to say certain things. I have skin in the game. I have to say this stuff because after all, it's my livelihood. So they may not take me as seriously as they will take you. You understand what I'm saying? Well, of course you're going to say that. You're a preacher. What else are you going to say? But if you're not a preacher by profession, they will listen to you where they will not listen to me. Much more work for the kingdom can be done by you. The best thing I can do is to help equip you to do that. I love preaching the gospel. I love sharing my faith with people. And it has opened some doors. Because people who know I'm a preacher who may not be believers, they might turn to me years down the road. Hey, is there something you can help me with? But in terms of just day-to-day -day relationship evangelism, most of my relationships are in the church. Jim Tour could quit his job tomorrow and make a comfortable living sharing his story with church groups and speaking primarily to the converted. And he does this on the side, you understand? He does get invited to share this stuff, and it's useful. But he stays in the trenches professionally because that is where he's the most effective witness. Here is another truth that is central to this whole theme. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 2 says this, and the things that you have heard from me, this is Paul to Timothy again, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see this? Don't commit them to able men. Commit them to faithful men because faithful men will be able to teach them to others. There was a sign that a lot of the guys had made at Canaan land, and they hung it in their room that said this, God makes faithful men able. You know, abilities can be taught. Faithfulness kind of can. Uh, It can be encouraged, it can be developed, but it's more a matter of yielding and being willing. Faithfulness uh, is not a skill. Faithfulness is a quality. And Paul's saying, you commit these things to faithful men. I'll see to it that they are able. They will be able to teach others also. Now we go down to uh, a little further. It's still in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then down to verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So there's the faithfulness. There is, it starts with the heart. What is it that I want to do? Because if your answer is to be in full-time ministry, and when you mean I want to be a pastor, I want to be a full-time uh, itinerant, whatever, nothing wrong with being those things, but no, what's my goal? What is you want to be? I want to be an effective witness to Jesus Christ. I want to do the thing, A, that God has called me to do. I want to do what is going to be the most effective thing to bring others into the kingdom, whatever that is, or wherever that is. And so we start with that, and then there's the faithfulness. What can I do uh, in the church, and what can I do out of the church that is going to help the kingdom grow? And then there's this, the study habits. You be diligent to show yourself approved. Study to show yourself approved. Handling the word of God accurately. Again, Jim Tour, like he doesn't have enough reading to do, enough study to do. He spends a minimum of two hours a day reading the Bible. Why? So he can handle it accurately. So he can answer the critics, so he can answer the questions. Your natural inclinations and talents and your current situation will provide opportunities. But you have to be ready to seize these opportunities. You have to be ready to speak by having something to say. When you have an opportunity, don't don't bow out by saying, well, I'm no Bible scholar. It's not an excuse. You should be. I'm not saying you need to be, again, a professional. Uh, You don't need to have the credentials of a Billy Graham or a Jim Tour even. But we should all be getting better. We should be diligent. Studying, reading, praying, all these things fall under the category of faithfulness. If I am faithful to do these things, then I will be ready for every opportunity to share that comes along, to be a witness. And again, Your goal is not or should not be, I'll be as faithful as I can be and then maybe I'll achieve a position in occupational ministry or a title or something like that. Your goal, the prize you keep your eye on 
is saved souls. I think it was Wesley, and somebody correct me if you know, uh, if it was somebody else for sure, who was speaking to a gathering of ministers. And he just got up and said, you have nothing to do but save souls. Anything you are doing in your ministry with, that is not aimed toward that end, you are wasting your time and dishonoring your call. I'm just saying, now you've got other things to do throughout the day. I get it, we all do. But our goal as ministers, fellow ministers of the gospel, is to save souls. And what is the reward we're looking for? Nothing less than, nothing more than, nothing besides the well done, thou good and faithful servant. Praise the worship team, come up here. I'm going to do this quickly, but I have a couple different invitations for you. Stand up with me, please. And don't blow this off. Of course, first of all, if you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, let's take care of that first. We want to save souls. What are we saving souls from? We're saving them from hell. We're saving them from sin. We all have a part in that. And you better believe me, there is a heaven, there is a hell. And you are going to spend eternity in one of those two places. If you have not secured your reservation in heaven by accepting the finished work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, let's do that right now. Okay? I'm going to pray about that first, and then I'm going to move on to two other invitations. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you as Father, who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, who has never received on their behalf the finished work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, my prayer, the prayer of every believer in this room, is that you would convict them, convince them of their need for salvation, make them know they need you, and then grant them the humility and the boldness and the wisdom to seize this opportunity to receive that salvation now. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Come down here right now and quickly and let me pray with you. It'll take, if you mean it, all you got to do is repeat after me. I'm asking you to walk down in front of all these people. All these people. Come on. This is salvation. This is your eternal destiny we're talking about. And if you want to make that decision right now, all these people will do nothing but celebrate with you. Does anyone desire to be saved today? Raise your hand. All right. I hope that means everybody's saved. Second is this. Remember what Jesus said. Stay here in Jerusalem. He was saying this to people who were born again. Make no mistake about that. The disciples were saved already. But he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will that power enable you to do? the thing we are called to do, be his witnesses. Starting here, going everywhere. If you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you are ill-equipped to do the things that God has called you to do. Don't try doing this without the Holy Spirit. Time is of the essence. There's an urgency here. And Jesus said, wait. And now once the Spirit has been poured out, we no longer need to wait. We just need to receive him. And I would love to pray with you for the baptism of the Holy Spirit if you've not been filled with the Holy Spirit. So in a minute, I'm going to invite you up here. Everybody else, you don't have to do anything. You can do this from where you are. But we've got a nice, long, uh, we, we call it the altar. The altars are open. And what I would encourage you to do, you can again, you can do it from your seats. You can do it standing. You can sit. You can kneel. You can come up here. But I would just call it a fresh surrender. God, 
This isn't about what I envision myself doing. I want to make sure that I am surrendered and I'm yielded to your plan for my life, for your plan for my ministry. Lord, open my eyes to see more clearly. Open my ears to hear more clearly. Open my heart to receive more easily everything that you are calling me and commanding me to do because what I want to be more than anything else is the most effective I can be where I am today. He'll, fix, he'll take care of tomorrow for you. I'm going to pray one more prayer, then we're going to start singing. And when they start singing, I want you to come up here if you so desire. Yield yourself afresh to God's plan for your life and ministry. This is not just, this is a, listen, this is a church that believes in your physical healing, in your prosperity even. God is for you. He wants this to be a good life for you. But his concern is for souls. And it starts with that. That's what this is about today. Yielding yourself to his plan for your life to be used in the ministry. Amen? When I'm done praying, feel free to come down. Avail yourself of the altar. If you desire to be saved or filled with the Holy Spirit, come to me and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the calling. Thank you for the gifts. Thank you for the positions. Thank you for the opportunities. For all of it, Lord, but help us to keep our eyes on the prize. Help, help our heart beat. Our hearts beat with what, what drives you, Lord God. A love for souls. A, lo a love for the lost. And a concern to see people brought into the kingdom of God. Help us to be the most effective believers. The most effective ministers we can be where you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.